Hello and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here, as always, with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins and the head of the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. Helen, how are you doing? Hi there, Dave. I'm doing really well, thank you. And I'm very much looking forward to today's talk. I know. So I'm going to talk about this a lot in the podcast in various episodes because I just got back from a trip to Israel with my family. And we, of course, had to go down to the Dead Sea and float around in that freakish <laughs> salty water and and bob up and down in, in, in otherworldly ways. And it was a lot of fun. And we, while we were there, we did drive by um, Qumran, the location of these caves where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that is what we're going to talk about today. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Why are they so important? Um, we have with us uh, Charlotta Hempel. She is professor of Hebrew Bible and Second Temple Judaism and the head of the School of Philosophy, Theology, and Religion at the University of Birmingham. And uh, she is an expert on all things Dead Sea Scrolls. We're very excited to have her. Hello, Charlotta. How are you doing? I'm fine, and uh, thanks so much for having me on the no, program. Thanks for being here. Um, so, you've got two female heads, Dave. How do you feel about I, that? I feel very honored. Of course, is that very intimidating? <laughs> and it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the we hope so. So, you know, Charlotte, you probably think that biblical time machine. You probably think that is just a figurative thing. You don't realize that we actually have a time machine, and of course, mm-hmm. I'm going to dial up. We're not going to go back too far right now. I'm going to go to 1946. I'll press the buttons and we'll start our journey. 1946 is the year when uh, some Bedouin, uh, was he a sheep herder or a goat herder or something, accidentally stumbled upon these caves and these and these scrolls, right? What's the story there? Yeah, the story is that some Bedouin were herding animals in the area. And, and uh, uh, at one point... They threw a stone into a cave and heard something breaking, um, (laughs) breaking ceramics. And they checked out this cave and initially found three large scrolls Mm. in it. So they were inside some kind of ceramic canisters, right? Yes. Nowadays, we call these uh, scroll jars, but they're actually also called cylindrical jars. And they may have been made for different purposes at the time, including uh, carrying pure produce around, but they also worked very well for scrolls, particularly in this cave where they found a very large number, around 50 wow. of those jars, many of them broken. Okay. So so there's a long tale about how they you know, they take these back to their village. They finally they end up selling them to, to a dealer. They get their way in front of a scholar who realizes, wait a second, these are very important. So if you could just give us... You know, the the little bit of an overview, but why were these Dead Sea Scrolls such a landmark discovery in, you know, religious studies and, and biblical scholarship when they were finally realized what they were? Yeah, it took a little while to uh, get it established that they were actually ancient uh, because we weren't expecting to find anything, mm. particularly the first scrolls. They're sizable, up to eight meters long. Wow. And from another cave, we've got a scroll, a temple scroll that's nine meters long. Um, nobody thought uh, that you could find any manuscripts from the period 250 BCE to 68 CE 
in the original, they wouldn't survive. Uh, um, once it was discovered, it is really very remarkable because before the scrolls were found, the oldest piece of biblical material was something called a Nash papyrus that was purchased in 1902 in Egypt by somebody called Dr. Nash. And that was only the size of, if you imagine, like a paper tissues that you carry in your handbag that are folded, the folded surface of one of those, that was the largest piece we had with parts of the Ten Commandments and the prayer, Shema prayer from Deuteronomy 6. And uh, then to go from that and scale it up to scrolls up to eight meters, it was quite hard for people to believe that. So yeah, when you say the Nash papyrus was the oldest, so how how old was the Nash papyrus compared to these these Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, it's always quite difficult to date these things because they're not got, not got a date stamp on them. But scholars have dated the Nash papyrus to 150 uh, or up between 150 and 100 BCE. Okay. So just about on the on the you know on the money with where. Quite a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls date from the copies, at least. But then, like you said, the size. So we had this tiny fragment was the oldest thing we had, and now suddenly we have these full manuscripts. So, yeah. Well, Helen, you want to jump in? So I think we want to ask you a few practical questions about, you know, facts and figures and things like that. I think, am I right in thinking there's 11 caves? And how many, caves. how many actual texts are in there? Yeah, so basically there's 11 scroll caves at the side of Qumran, which is the one we're talking about, um, but there are hundreds of caves, natural ah. caves in the Judean hills, and they have all been combed several times. And some of our caves are man-made caves in the Mile Terrace, um, and that's quite a soft uh, material that they were sort of carved out. And whilst there are 11 caves with written material in them, the three biggies are that first cave you mentioned, Dave, uh, that was found first, Cave 1. And then Cave 11 is another one with very large manuscripts in it, uh, including the Temple Scroll, nine metres long. And the other really important one is Cave 4, which had hundreds of remains of manuscripts, but many of them fragmentary. Uh, so altogether, there's a view that we are reckoning with around with around a 1,000 the remains of around a thousand manuscripts, but there's only about ten to fifteen really, really sizable ones. Lots where we have small pieces, but also some where we have a series of you know pieces that once you put them together, you do have quite a lot of material. It's like a jigsaw, isn't it? I remember seeing photos of the earliest, um, the earliest people. You know, ro- rows of guys sitting around with these tiny fragments, and they're all smoking away. <laughs> yeah. You know, you think all oh, of those things could have just gone up like anything, but there's some of them are so tiny, weren't they? And they were sort of trying to piece them together. Quite yes, incredible. I think it, it was an incredible job to work with the tiny pieces at the beginning, and as you said, they're all guys. Mm. No Jewish scholars uh, in that particular setup. The, some of the scrolls were published by the Hebrew University early on, but the, the ones from K4, and they used all kinds of methods where you wouldn't now like the smoking. But also, <laughs> um, I heard that about Cave 11 was full of bats. And ah. bats, where you have bats, you have bat dung. So apparently, some of the early 
detectives, scholar detectives, used to be able to identify vintage KV-11 apparently by licking. Licking? (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe with a finger or something, but they had a really sort of, they used all kinds of methods just to, you know, find out what goes together. (laughs) I imagine smelling as well. Oh, gross. So for for people who, you know, are new to this topic, so when we when we say all these manuscripts, so they are are there some of the oldest copies of of books that we know, like like books from, you know, the Hebrew Bible, or you might call it the Old Testament, like is that is that true we're finding like full copies of of books that we previously had only had the earliest ones, you know, from the Middle Ages or something, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we have around 200, maybe just over 200 manuscripts of what later would become the fixed mm-hmm. canon of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Tanakh, or Old Testament. Um, amongst those, the most popular ones were Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Psalms. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting from Helen's point of view, I imagine, is that those four were the most popular books because they were scrolls then, and that were the same books that were most often referred to in the New Testament. Mm. Mm. I was just thinking that, actually. Those are the ones that get quoted and and sort of alluded to, the echoes. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, George Brooke from Manchester, he called it the canon within the canon. Mm. We We didn't have a Bible in the sense that we have it today, we had most of the same texts. The ones we haven't got uh, preserved is Nehemiah and Esther. Everything else is no. there. Now, w- when you say the most the most popular books were, were Genesis and those other ones, you're saying because there were multiple copies of each of those books? Multiple copies, but also um, lots of engagement hmm. with them in terms of referring to them and quoting them. Oh, okay. Yeah, because so, okay, so we have yeah. these books that we recognize from the Bible. I imagine where there's some books from like what we call the Apocrypha things that didn't make it into the canon as well. Yes. So, so the Apocrypha made it into some other mm. canon. So in the Catholic church, for instance, we've got a larger canon. Uh, and then in the Orthodox church, we have yet larger mm. canons. The most exciting thing to happen was We've got um, some books, booklets that are associated with the patriarch Enoch, who, according to Genesis chapter 5, doesn't die, but gets taken up by God into Mm. heaven. And that, in the ancient period, led to a lot of speculation about what might he be seeing, what might he know. So a lot of writings were associated with him. And until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, those books were only preserved in Ethiopic hmm. because the Orthodox Church of Ethiopia, which is very old, was interested in that material. And people speculated it probably had ancient roots in, a, in another language, and we found original fragments in Aramaic in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Wow. And that was, that was the first time anyone had seen that that, that particular manuscript. That text. Yeah, and it's lovely in terms of pe- in terms of people, um, Helen, because here is a church, you know, the Ethiopic Church preserving the heritage of Jewish people from mm. antiquity, which is of course a shared heritage between Christians and Jews. Um, but 
it just you know I think it's a, it's a great story in terms of you know global heritage and who preserves what. Yeah, yeah and all the interconnections between different groups of people. But sort of talking about you know ancient groups of people, I mean the the scrolls really sort of helped us to to see that there was a huge amount of diversity amongst um, ancient Jews too, don't they? I mean, is that? I mean, how, how how far are they part of the general diversity of the time, and how far do you think that they are just an odd group of people, sort of living living by the Dead Sea? That's really interesting. Um, I'll start with the odd people living by the Dead Sea. <laughs> I think that's what most of your listeners, if they've heard of them at all, will think it mm. is. But I don't think mm. so. Um, uh-huh. I think what's happening is we had a lot of, we prejudged the material a bit because we had accounts from first century historians like Josephus. Mm. And uh, he was writing in Rome, having fought the Romans on the side of the Jews in the war, get capt- he got captures and he was then kept by the royal family in uh, Rome. So his interest was to describe Jews and really interesting Jews, exotic kind of mm. Jews that do odd mm. things because the Romans liked that kind mm. of thing. So experts on Josephus like Steve Mason will say he was writing an ethnography of his people that mm. made himself and his people peak and interest. Mm. So we shouldn't start with him kind of trying to impress his Roman elite friends. And what happened with the scrolls is that the full corpus was only published in the late 90s. Um, So now we have the full corpus. I actually think it's a much bigger picture. And uh, it really, so for instance, on the site of Qumran, we found ritual immersion pools. You'd think that's what this pious Jewish observant group was doing. But scholars have recently shown you have them in the Herodian and Hasmonean palaces in Jericho. And we now have them hundreds of miles away in Gamla, in Golanitis, at the same time, 1st century BCE to 1st century CE, like mushrooms. So (laughs) there was a kind of elites who were engaging with the Bible and washing. Perhaps I think the most likely theory is mimicking what Greek bathing culture was doing. Hmm. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, so that comes from someone called Jonathan Adler, who wrote an article in the Journal of Jewish Studies. And to me, it makes perfect sense, because Jews were always told when defiled, you wash and you wait until sunset. But it didn't actually necessarily mention immersion. And that's what starts to be picked up. Um, So I think it's very much an elite They have a lot of ancient knowledge there about the stars, about the calendars, and uh, they have all of these texts, which you would only have if you were quite wealthy, educated. Mm -hmm. And so I call it Silicon Wadi. (laughs) If you compare it to Silicon Valley, where you've got a lot of millionaires with a lot of technology who walk around in a T-shirt and they look like they haven't got a penny to their name, that's these guys because they claim to be poor, but they actually have all of the knowledge, a lot that passed through that very important geographical strip of land that connects Mesopotamia to Egypt and the Mediterranean. And they were just 
faux pour, you know, pretend pour. Mm. Well, yeah, well, let's back up for a second because, yeah, like you said, some people might be kind of familiar with this group. So we call them the Essenes, right? And and you you said Josephus wrote about them. So what are what are, you know, some of the the more common characteristics that we associate with them and then we can get into whether you think those are true or not. But what are the kind of things that are usually used to describe this this community, these these Essenes? Yeah. One of the things um that is mentioned is that they on the whole weren't married. But then Josephus has another passage where he says, but some of them were married. <laughs> um, we've got some uh, information about their admissions process, which was quite prolonged. And Josephus claims to have been a member of the group. Um, and we also have um, something about their practices in terms of meals, uh, toilet practices, uh, and so forth. So, Whilst the term Essenes does not occur in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is no doubt that there are some correspondences between what we find in the community rule, especially one of the scrolls from Cave 1 and then later Cave 4, and what Josephus and other authors like Philo say. But this is where I become scientific, like a chemist, <laughs> If you imagine your listener is a chemist and has a lab, you keep your petri dishes clean. You don't go contaminating what you're doing in the left petri, petri dish with the other one. It, you should look at Josephus from the point of view of his tendencies, etc., and at the scrolls on their own, and only then check mm. out how they compare. That didn't happen. Yeah, so you say there's this 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 text called the Community Rule. Tell us a little bit about this, because yeah, it, it seems to describe, like you said, sort of the process of becoming a member of this community and then some of their practices. Can you just kind of highlight a, a couple of those? Yes. So it's a community that gets together. Um, there is references to smaller groups getting together to eat together, to pray together, and to exchange counsel. They ask for a priest to be present if there's more than 10. And they also sh share food. And then we have other passages that seem to describe larger meetings where there is, um, in one case, we have a reference to an oath to join, which is something that's reflected also in another text called the Damascus document. But the most famous account that people tend to remember from the community rule is an admissions process where you take several years until you are fully initiated. It's a little bit like the Masons almost. Yes. In fact, the Masons are very interested in the scrolls. I gave a lecture oh. in uh, Manchester where we had a large contingent of Masons. Well, I know that we don't, you know, outside of Josephus, we don't know a lot about the Essenes, but like, if we kind of step back, like, do we know that there were other types of these societies or, or groups that had a type of admission process within Judaism? Like, were there other sects like this, or do they seem to stand out? Yeah, we have quite a lot from Philo okay. as well. Um, and and scholars, some scholars have suggested that perhaps there were sources that were used by these ancient authors on mm. these groups. There was certainly an interest in these in sorts of groups like this in antiquity, like the Spartans as mm. well, which is something Steve Mason has pointed out. Um 
I think the complexity of the admissions process, how you have people all seated and then if somebody who joins to stand up in front and these examinations, I don't think we have anything quite like that um, in Judaism. And there are ancient um, associations where we have references in inscriptions, etc. But in my view, which I sort of tentatively suggested in my commentary on the community rule, a little bit like the um, ritual immersion pools that pop up everywhere, I don't actually believe people would get the scroll out, seven-meter-long scroll, <laughs> to check whether you let this guy in or whether you punish mm. him. I think we know from what it says that certain people are superior and at their word, you do what you've got to do. But it's a way for me, inscribing yourself as important, the community, perhaps partly reflecting a very organized Greek way of behaving. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. I can I ask, I, I was always taught and, and sort of still still assume that they they were anti-temple. They 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 set themselves against the temple in Jerusalem and, and somehow they sort of think of their own community or their gatherings as a sort of alternative temple. Is is do you think that's right? Um no, I mean the number one <laughs> I thing. You might say that. <laughs> but we've always had different texts that mention the temple, like the Damascus document mentions the temple. Um, and uh, we've got now this new letter where priests disagree with practice called MMT. It seems to suggest that someone is watching certain people leaving offerings overnight and telling them you shouldn't leave these offerings overnight, which suggests some kind of a, um, being close to it. Martin Goodman has, has challenged this recently. And he said, um, just because there is debate about how to use the temple properly, that's what Jews were doing all mm. the time. Mm. You know, you've got Jesus debating, you've got Josephus describing all kinds of things happening. That's what was done. It, it, it is only, he says, in the conference at Birmingham at first, and then in the Oxford Handbook, he says that um, we have been without a temple for so long, you know, thousands of years now. And Christians have really never really, after a while, had much to do with the temple. Jews didn't have it. So therefore, it's very easy for scholars to imagine that these pious Jews would have just said, oh, temple, who needs it? <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I, I, think, I think there was debate with the temple. And then we have this passage where they compare the community as being like a temple. Mm. And colleagues have recently looked at that and said, Carol Newsom and Cecilia Vassen have said, that's a metaphor, mm. like a temple. It also says like a new planting. You don't actually say, oh, they're all plants, <laughs> do you? Mm. <laughs> so um, this is really perhaps partly Christian scholars in the early days thinking, oh, here we've got the kind of Jews we can work with, mm. right? <laughs> Yeah, it's very yeah. similar to those early Christian things about, you know, the temple yeah. of his body and temple in the in the early Christian community. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So it's all up in the air, Helen. It's all up in the uh, air. That's how we like it. 
It's, it's not relaxing. You guys in business have got to be up in the air. If it's, if it's solved, <laughs> you, the work is over. We need to earn our living. Dave. Well, we need to earn a living. Going, going back to the, the text for a minute, you mentioned before that there were multiple copies of, of different books. And I've read that, you know, between these these copies, there were some differences, some of them small and, and some of them larger. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Was it is it surprising? Was it surprising to scholars that at the time to find these ancient manuscripts that had, you know, weren't all the same? Yes, I think it was. But I think the the big story is on the whole, there was quite a lot of continuity. Mm. You know, we didn't find that it was all completely different. <laughs> um, some sort of smaller differences are that famous passages in Isaiah 6 that you find in Handel's Messiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of mm. hosts. We have in the Isaiah scroll only two holies. <laughs> now, maybe the scribe forgot one or maybe it had different, you know, different variations there. But there's two really exciting developments. Um, one is... There are a group of Israelites, as some scholars call them now, called the Samaritans. Mm. And that's a group where we still have a few thousand in Israel today. And they have only the first books of Moses, the five books of Moses, as their Bible. And scholars have always looked at their manuscripts when they looked at the text of the Old Testament to see if we could see differences. But when they were different, they harmonize a little bit. If there's two passages, they kind of connect them. They thought, oh, that was those Samaritans. Mm. That's when they interfered, mm. right? And some passages when they interfered, you could tell because they talked about the sanctuary on Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Zion. So clearly there were some what they call sectarian differences between the Pentateuch manuscripts, books of Moses. But the really exciting thing is in the scrolls, we found manuscripts of the five books of Moses, particularly Leviticus, where they have some of those harmonizing, elaborating features hmm. without the references to the different mountain for the temple. So that shows that our Jews, who, who wrote the biblical manuscripts from Qumran, used the same manuscripts that those Samaritans who would go a different path hmm. later were working from. And the even more exciting is we have manuscripts that have the form that doesn't elaborate in the way the Americans do and harmonize next to the ones we are familiar mm. with in the medieval um, Pentateuch books of Moses. So how cool is that? <laughs> Very cool. So is this going back and, and, <laughs> and identifying like this? Yeah, these changes were made anciently. They weren't as... Uh, yeah. We basically know we have scribes uh, from these groups who did part company they are still joined up at this period here, you know, yeah. 200 BC, and, and then they parted company. So that means when we look at the Samaritan Pentateuch and it differs a little bit, we better take it seriously because mm. this could be an ancient form. And the same with the Septuagint, the Greek translation. We found copies of Jeremiah that are Hebrew and look like the Greek correspond to the Greek, and we found copies of Jeremiah that correspond to the Hebrew we had. So these guys have both, and they didn't distinguish between it. But if you put yourself into a time of scrolls, it's not like a word processor where you, you, know, you override the last file. These are holy texts. You wouldn't throw them out. 
And I don't believe it was a case of which one do you prefer. Let me take you back to my farm. There was no question. Little Charlotte, which book would you like to read? It was a question of which book is here? Not very many, right? Mm. Now, these scrolls, several animals need to be fattened to write these scrolls. You would have a teacher or whoever it is, and you would make do with what they had. It's not Amazon, (laughs) and it's not a library or Borders Books. So... Why is it surprising? Well, yeah, so sometimes it's referred to almost as this library. Do you think that's not an accurate way to talk about these these scrolls stashed in these caves? I think that's a whole new podcast, and (laughs) some of my colleagues have written on it. But what I think is really interesting, well, they were really, really wealthy. They have an awful lot. We have no idea how much else there was out there, but, um, you know, It's a huge amount of wealth, intellectual wealth, knowledge economy of the time. But what I find quite exciting is the research on what is in the different caves, what kind of material. So the cave one stuff was in jars and sometimes it had linen with it. And I'm really keen on cave four because that's the cave where most of the duplicates are, where all of the cryptic uh, text is in. And I was wondering whether that is a kind of um, a scholarly hub that had the more elevated material in it, um, where you you know you might not have that as a sort of a presentation copy like you have in Cave One. Um, but yeah, I think you should have a whole new <laughs> library podcast because there's several libraries and comparative work. And so, what happened to them in the end? How did they die out? Well, did they die out? So what happened to the site is that the Romans, on their way to Jerusalem, stopped by. And we know that there were some coins, etc., and and arrowheads. And they went to Jerusalem, and then they would come back to the region to defeat the rebels on Masada. And the idea was that was that then, right, the end of the Essenes. But again, it was Martin Goodman who started challenging that sort of watershed. There's a lot of literature now on the watershed of 70 when the temple was destroyed. Mm. Did everything really start again from scratch? They may have joined the rabbinic movement, which eventually would be in Galilee. And then, you know, it was also Babylonia. Uh, And also some might have become Christians. And, you know, the idea that it all ended there it's only because we haven't got the evidence. Mm. So I'll be a bit more open-minded there. And so I guess the same question about how these documents, how, how these how these scrolls ended up in these caves, is was the general idea, the Romans are coming, let's stash these things away, or are there other theories? Yeah, there are a number of theories. I mean, clearly, um, they were brought there by a movement. We also know that we have some of them in a, in a synagogue in Cairo in medieval copies, the Damascus document. We have references in the 3rd century that Origen had a manuscript of the Psalms from a cave near Jericho. Mm. Um, so there are different theories that why they, but the scrolls were taken there and where they were taken from. It is possible that they came from Jerusalem with a community um the theory has been proposed that it was because the Romans were coming, but others have said, 
how come they actually dug out man-made caves, you know, if they were in such a hurry? Mm. So it seems to be that area around the, you know, around the Dead Sea, that settlement was occupied by an existing group that kicked off elsewhere, settled there, some of them settled there, and probably brought all this literature. So where they exactly came from, I think it's quite interesting, Helen, actually, because we now don't know where they started. So I'm reckoning it probably started where people were debating the law with others who became Christians later, because we have the same debates. Early synagogues as well. We don't know exactly. Eddie Adams has written on meeting places. We don't know exactly where that started. Public places, private places, and I think they may have originally all mingled together, which is why they are arguing about the Sabbath still in the New Testament, and they have debates in these scrolls. So it makes it really wide open. Wow. Well, like you said, so we knew let we know less than we thought we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, it, it's fascinating that this is all happening, and I know this is why it caught the attention of of Christian scholars. It's all happening at the same mm. period where, where you have the the Jesus movement getting started, and there's questions all around about how how are how are the Jewish people going to to function after the destruction of the temple and i don't know it's 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 a very fertile fertile ground for for uh lots of religious evolution at this time so well thank you for helping us understand a little bit more about what these dead sea scrolls are and what why they're so significant i encourage people to to go out now they're all like now they're digitally available right yeah to the public everybody yes they are yeah, there is a Dead Sea Scrolls digital archive uh, supported by the Leon Levy family at the Israel Antiquities Authority website. Um, and there are multispectral images there where everybody can see them and they're adding more resources to it as we go. And everything is published. That's really cool. All right, so people should go check it out. And uh, But thank you again, Charlotte. Thank you, Helen, as always. And um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of Biblical Time Machine. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.